Hello? Hello, hello. There we go. Good, man. Good to have you with us. Welcome, welcome. Once again to everyone online. Those of you guests here today, great to have you with us. Welcome, man. We um, continue to have lots of space for lots more people. Eh? We're looking so forward to it. So. <laughs> Good. Keep on inviting. It'll come up again a little later in this message. So, I had people asking how I'm doing. It went actually very well after the last round of chemo until I picked up shingles this week. Can you believe it? It's like, so, um, yes, it is like torture. You just blow on your skin kind of thing. I haven't experienced anything like it before. There's a problem with chemo and apparently with lymphoma, you are more prone to it. So, anyway, um, so I've got, I've had lots of prayer, strong meds, and I'm actually bandaged up. That's the best way. So there's no shirt, there's nothing touching it. And I'm strong by God's grace. I'm not the hero God is. He is, uh, he is still healing. He is still in control. He's still good. Amen. So um, on that note, let's dive right in. We are busy with a series um, on the end times called Is This It? And uh, I said last Sunday it feels a bit like season three <laughs> with uh, some of the breaks we've had along the way. But we are nearing the end. And we came back to the book of 2 Thessalonians, which sometimes surprises people. They say, you know, 2 Thessalonians is an end times book. But actually, in First and 2 Thessalonians, Paul touches on a number of end times themes. He really focuses on the return of the king, on the second coming of Christ. And he uses that as a means to encourage this church who are going through hard times, who are facing persecution, especially for their faith in Jesus. So um, let's have a look. Something feels wrong here. Is this right, eh? Coming through right to the back there. I'm doing something a bit weird. There we go. That sounds better, eh? Is it all right? Okay. Okay. Thank you. Here we go. So last Sunday we looked at the tribulation and the rapture. And I want to remind you of a guardrail that we put in place in the very first week. Okay, and we're going to come back. I did last Sunday, but I want to do it again. Remember, we must be careful to distinguish between what the Bible clearly teaches and what comes down to interpretations and explanations of man regarding those teachings. Amen? We can never, ever elevate the teaching of man, the explanations and interpretations to the same level. They don't have the same authority as Scripture. We know this. But especially, friends, we can't allow them to divide us as the body of Christ. We can't divide over which interpretation or explanation we follow. Can I have an amen? Can give a thumbs up online as well. All right. This is so important. So it's particularly important with what we're going to look at today. All right. So writing about the day of the Lord's return, which remember last week we said some of the Thessalonians had been duped into believing that, uh, that it had already happened. All right. And is there all good? Okay, I'm going to try the other ear. The side of my head's too echoey. Sorry, give me a second. Okay, one, two, three. How's that? Any better? It still seems a bit... I don't know why this thing won't clip. It always, it's always fun, eh? And I was the one who preached last Sunday, so there shouldn't be any reason. But let's see, I can't get this thing to grip today. There we go. Okay, that's it. All right. At the back. Thank you. Sorry, online. Maybe my ears have also lost weight. Who knows? I don't know. Um, I have put on again. I will say that I've actually put on most of what I lost by God's grace. I'm actually very excited about that. Although I'm, I'm probably the good weight right now. I'm trying to stay there. All right. Anyway, enough about me. Here we go. Let's get back to, let's get back to this. Just see, this is a battle today. Eh? Stay there. Stay. Okay. Are you all right? I mustn't move too much. I don't want to anyway. So, so Paul writes this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 12. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. 
He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Amen. All right. Is this okay? Am I coming through right at the back? Okay. Sorry, man. Just something feels wrong. All right. Paul points to two things that need to happen before the day of the Lord. That is the rebellion and the revelation then of this man of lawlessness. Now, we face a little bit of a challenge here. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. Paul says over there, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back. We'll pause there. So Paul had orally taught them when he was with them. He'd given them a whole lot more background to the man of lawlessness and what it was or who it was that was holding him back. But now in this letter, he reminds them he taught them, but he doesn't repeat what he taught. He doesn't set this out for us. So we've got some gaps, isn't that so? It's a little challenging. We don't know all that Paul had taught them. And so Dr. Leon Morris says this. He said, this passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of the Pauline writings. And the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculations. And we know throughout history, friends, and even now, there are wild and extravagant speculations when it comes to the identity of the, the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist, as John refers to him. All right? And so the thing is this. That's the first part of it. The second challenge we face when we come to biblical prophecy concerning the Antichrist is this. Is it referring to something or someone that has already happened, or already been, already lived, or is it pointing to something that is yet to come in our history? All right, I'll give you an example. Have a look at Daniel 11, verse 31. This is one of the many prophecies in Daniel. We read this. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. This thing is still loose. Just give me a second. There we go. Let's... Okay. Now it's really driving me crazy. Sorry, man. Tony, you sure it's on the right side here? Is this good? Okay, now it's clipping in. Yes, yeah. Okay. I can feel it loose on my ear. Sorry, okay. I'm going to keep my very still. All right. There's no hair to wear it down, so it's all good. All right. Have a look at this. All right. One of the many prophecies in Daniel concerning the, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And um, as some have said, this seems to point to, many scholars believe this points to the Syrian king Antiochus IV, also known as Epiphanes. Epiphanes, it's quite a weird name, eh? John Stott writes this about this king. He says, He was guilty of appalling desecrations of the temple in Jerusalem. In 169 BC, he presumed to enter the Holy of Holies. And the following year, he erected an altar to Zeus on the altar of burnt offering, probably placed a statue of Zeus over it and sacrificed a pig on it. Do you know how, what an abomination, how appalling that is for the Jews? 
This was the abomination that causes desolation. Desolating sacrilege, RSV, or the awful horror, GNB, which is referred to historically in the first book of the Maccabees and prophetically in the book of Daniel. All right, so Antiochus IV ticks quite a number of boxes when it comes to this prophecy of Daniel and other prophecies of Daniel that were like it, okay? And so even though you can see figures like this that tick the boxes, there's still a sense that Daniel's prophecies haven't been completely fulfilled. So I think John helps us a bit in his writings, in his letters, okay? Have a look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says this, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Now that could look like a contradiction. You've heard Antichrist is coming, but many Antichrists has come. What is he saying? Well, look at how he describes Antichrist in his, in his further writings in chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. 1 John 4 verse 3. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. And in finally, 2 John verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. If you bring all this together, what John is saying is that many Antichrists have gone out into the world, okay? Those would be deceivers who deny or do not acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. So there's this opposition, but there is this underlying thing that there is one still yet to come, all right? And if we think about this, throughout history, Christians and the church have pointed to different people and said, Surely that must be the Antichrist. So in the times of the early church, Roman emperors like Nero and Domitian, I think it's how you pronounce his name, Domitian, okay? So he, Domitian, actually Domitian, however you say it, he demanded to be worshipped as Lord and God. He persecuted those who wouldn't worship him as Lord and God, all right? In fact, this is all by the way, there are some scholars who believe that the prophecies in Revelation, prophecies like Revelation chapter 13 on the two beasts actually point back to the Roman Empire under Domitian. Now, we're not going into that. I'm just saying, okay? There are those who interpret it like that. And then others appointed two figures in history like Napoleon Bonaparte, Adolf Hitler. In the 16th century, many of the reformers, men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, they believed that the Antichrist was the papacy, was the office of Pope, all right? And uh, it's interesting, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is like a statement of faith for us as Protestants, it was written in 1646. This is how they describe the Pope in uh, that confession of faith. That man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. Quite amazing, eh? All right. So, please listen carefully. In one sense, friends, the church hasn't been wrong. Christians haven't been wrong through the ages because there have been many who have gone out as antichrists, as John describes them, who oppose the truth about Jesus, who have being responsible for all kinds of evil. And I think it's important to, to underline this. We're not just talking about an, an individual unbeliever, someone who refuses to believe. These are people, often kings, emperors, etc., people of influence who have led groups or nations or empires to commit great acts of evil and to oppose the truth of Jesus, his gospel, and his kingdom. So there have been many, and some of them even fulfill some of the Old Testament prophecies. They tick some of the boxes. But even so, friends, in fact, before I get there, let me say this. Remember Paul writing something similar to John in verse 7. He said, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. 
I wouldn't have to convince you that lawlessness is very present. That spirit of Antichrist is very present on the earth today. What we went through in that unrest week, there was a real manifestation of lawlessness during that time. Not so, okay? So, here's the thing. That said, okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and other biblical prophecies like it do nevertheless, even though we've had these antichrists in history, these people you could point to. And by the way, so I'll say this, I'll throw this in just for a light moment. You do notice um, it tends to be a man of lawlessness, eh? Tends to be a man. We'll get on to that in just a moment. Okay, ladies, don't go too far on that one. There haven't been too many female antichrists, I think, in history or that have been pointed to, but let's not push that too far. Okay, today. All right. Anyway, come back to the thing. So here's the thing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and other biblical prophecies like it do seem to be pointing to the antichrist, the ultimate antichrist, if you like, who is yet to come before the day of the Lord. This will be someone who outdoes all of those who've gone before him, who, who takes evil and rebellion against God to, to an altogether different level. Okay, so there is the sense that there is one story yet to come. So let's look at what the Bible teaches on this. Now, I'm not coming to you today with a whole lot of wild and extravagant speculations about who or what this could be. Let's stick to what 2 Thessalonians teaches us, all right? Remember again the challenge. We don't have all the background that the Thessalonian church had. Paul had taught them orally, and he didn't repeat in his letter. But I believe, friends, there's enough in here to help us to sift through some of the wild stuff that's out there to, to really get to the truth of it. And also, if we happen to be alive in this time, I believe that even this chapter, never mind all the other biblical prophecies, even this chapter, I believe, gives us enough to be able to identify the Antichrist when he is revealed, the ultimate Antichrist. All right, so let's have a look. Remember again, we're talking about the most evil, the most wicked, the most rebellious person, human, who will ever walk the face of the earth. Okay, this is who this person is going to be. And I think it is an important point that the Antichrist is a man, is a person. The ESV interprets verse 3 like this, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So most, most theologians would say, this isn't going to be a robot or a machine or a computer system, something impersonal. We're talking about a human being. There are some who say that it could be a government or institution. It's possible, but my interpretation, I do underline that, my understanding is that it is going to be a man, all right, a human being. Verse 4 tells us that he opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So it would seem that he will oppose all world religion, but obviously most specifically he will oppose God, the one true God, and try and set himself up in a way that he is exalted and worshipped over God. Verse 4 goes on to tell us that he sets himself up in God's temple. Now some interpret this literally. They say that this will literally be the Jerusalem temple. The immediate problem is there's no Jerusalem temple. It was torn down by the Romans in 70 AD, so there's nothing there. But of course, I've heard stories through the years, reports of those who are seriously intending to rebuild the Jerusalem temple. So some say it will literally be in that temple. Others take this word um, temple. They say that Paul would sometimes use the word temple for church. Okay, I mean, we are obviously the temple of the Holy Spirit, but sometimes the church collectively. I think this is the thing, if I could throw this in, as a, I hope a helpful way of looking at it. This Antichrist will set himself up in a place where God is truly worshipped. He's trying to usurp. He's trying to take the worship that is due to God alone. Okay, So whatever shape and form that temple is, it's a central place where God would be worshipped, and that's what he takes. That's, that's one way of, of reading this, okay? Verse 4 ends with something vitally important. I don't want you to miss this, okay? It ends by telling us that he proclaims himself to be God. 
Please don't miss this, friends. We're not talking, <clears throat> excuse me, about just an evil emperor or king who opposes Christianity, who says, you are not allowed to worship Jesus. You are not allowed to follow God, okay? This guy takes it to another level. This is someone who will stand there and say, I am God, worship me. Okay, don't miss it. He proclaims himself to be God. I had someone after the first service ask a great question. They said, couldn't it just be God-like acts that he does? He probably will. You're going to see that in a moment, just further on. But this guy proclaims himself. He says, I am God, worship me. Okay, now if you think about that, I mean, who would imagine, like let's say your neighbors, you know, someone next door gets a knock. This dude stands in and says, I am God, worship me. I mean, they're going to phone the cops they're going to find the Oaks with those nice tight white jackets and come and take him away. You're not just going to worship someone. So how is it that he's going to be able to get people to worship him? Well, we find another important characteristic in verse 9. Reading from the ESV, it says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So this Antichrist is energized or empowered by Satan himself. And he will perform great signs and wonders. Though they are false, they will be powerful. And this will be enough to draw a whole lot of people in. Now, can I just say, it's always good to remind ourselves that because someone can perform a miracle or some display of power that is supernatural, it doesn't mean that they're right with God, even if they claim to be doing it in God's name or something like that, okay, in Jesus' name. We've just got to be so careful. You know, if you think back to the ten plagues, Pharaoh's magicians could mimic the first two, the river of blood and the, uh, the plague of frogs. They couldn't take it further. Today, you can have counterfeit healings through witch doctors or occultic practices. So again, it can be displays of power. We just, just because someone can do something supernatural doesn't mean that it's coming from God. I just want you to always remember that, okay? It's so important. So here's the thing, okay? Even though Paul taught them more than what we have orally, he doesn't repeat in the letter, there's enough here, friends, again, I believe, to sift out some of the wild stuff, but to help us, should we or the church, whoever it is that is alive at this time, there's enough here, I believe, to be able to help us to identify the Antichrist. We're talking about someone who opposes God, who exalts himself over God. He opposes all religion, but, but God specifically. Someone who sets himself up in the temple as a central place where he is to be worshipped because he proclaims himself as God and he's able to, in inverted commas, back it up through the energizing of Satan who enables him to perform great signs and wonders that would deceive many, many people. We'll talk about that deception in just a moment. Now, this can sound a bit gloomy, but, oh, you know, okay? But friends, there's great encouragement in this passage for us as Christians. All right, let's have a look at verses 6 and 7. It says this, And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. All right, so let's look at this. Again, Paul says, you know. So he told them, okay, how we wish he just quickly put a little reminder for us in the letter, okay? So this is, of course, you won't be surprised to know, caused great speculation again amongst scholars and theologians as to exactly who or what it is that's holding back the man of lawlessness until the proper time. So there are generally, if you research it, probably three big kind of answers that are put forward. The first was the restraint is coming from the Roman Empire itself. Immediate problem is no more Roman Empire. So what they'd say today is this refers to civil government and the principle of law and order. It's not wrong. We know that when you've got government with law and order, it stops, un it stops lawlessness. Okay, so it's not, it's not wrong. Okay. The second one is Paul himself was restraining, but more specifically the preaching of the gospel. And we know again, friends, when the gospel is proclaimed, especially in new places, darkness is driven back. 
lawlessness is driven back. Okay, so it could be the preaching of the gospel. The third possibility is God himself. And specifically the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing the restraining and the holding back. Now some people do say, well, how's God going to be taken out of the way? Again, that comes through to your whole pre post, mid-tribulation, this kind of thing. We spoke about that just briefly last week. Again, how you think the end is going to unfold can influence that. That can have a bearing. But I want to say this. I want to bring this together. There is a sense of all of the above. Civil government, law and order does restrain lawlessness. The preaching of the gospel definitely restrains lawlessness. But at the end of the day, friends, I believe the third one. Personally, my interpretation, my understanding is that God is the one ultimately in control. You know, God's not sitting in heaven. There's a time that says, yeah, there's a proper time when the man of lawlessness will be revealed. God's not sitting in heaven thinking, I wonder when the Antichrist is going to come, you know, checking his clock. No, no, no. It's not Satan who's holding back the Antichrist. It's not Satan who's going to lift the curtain and say, yeah, he is. God is the one who's in total control. The Antichrist will be revealed at the time appointed by God, just like the Son of God will return at the time appointed and ordained by God the Father. All right, it's very important that we know this. Okay, I, I once had the picture... It's like two armies at war. The one is so powerful, it tells the other one what they can do and when they're allowed to attack and that kind of thing. You know, God's in total control, yeah? Total, total control. All right. So, we don't have to live in fear of this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, because look at how easily he's dealt with. Verse 8, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, says this, Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. That word slay can be translated annihilate. Jesus will annihilate this dude with the breath of his mouth. Now some say that can be a spoken word or command, possibly, but it can literally mean the breath of his mouth. I pictured like this, friends. There's the Antichrist. Jesus comes, second coming. Looks at him. Get this right? No. It was more of a, I don't know what that was. Anyway, pretend that was the breath of God. That's literally it, friends. Breath of God, boom, finished. Game over. Can tell me, you can get excited. You can give a... That's exciting. You can give a thumbs up online, okay? And we read here that the Antichrist is destroyed by the splendor of his coming. You see, the, the return of Jesus will be such, there'd be such glory, such splendor, that this whole lie, this deception that Satan has built through the Antichrist, this man claiming to be God, will be utterly destroyed when the true God, the true Son of God, is revealed in all of his glory. Boom. That lies unraveled in a moment, just like that. Isn't that beautiful? Man, I, that, that will be something to see. It really, really will. So, in this passage, we read about a powerful delusion that will come upon people. And I've known Christians through the years to get quite scared by this and think, well, what if I'm one of these people who gets caught up in this delusion? I'm part of this great rebellion, this apostasy, this falling away um, from God. It's so important, friends, that we look at who it is that Paul is referring to. Let's have a look at this. I'll read from the New Living again, New Living Translation, verses 10 to 12. He says this, he will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies. Then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Friends, it's so important that we look, that we really understand this carefully, okay? These are people who perhaps now and then they go to church. They might call themselves Christians. If there was a form and you had to fill out and choose your religion, they might tick the Christian box. But these are people who were never saved. They were never saved. They were new, never true believers. They had rejected the truth. They were already on the way of destruction. And so John Stott writes this. He says, behind the great deception, <clears throat> excuse me, there lay the great refusal. 
It is of great importance to observe that the opposite of believing the truth is delighting in wickedness. This is because the truth has moral implications and makes moral demands. Evil, not error, is the root problem. Okay, so these, these are guys who refuse to love and accept the truth. All right? They were never saved. They were people who never had true relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the key thing you have to note, the key problem is that it was evil, not error. It wasn't that they were wrong. It was evil. It was their love of evil, their delight in wickedness that set them up for what followed. Okay? And so there was, we see uh, this almost terrible chain of events that kind of unfolds. When they're in this place of, of loving wickedness, delighting in evil, they've rejected the truth. This man of lawlessness, this antichrist is revealed with a great display of power, signs and wonders. And these people say, this is God. When he claims, he says, I'm God, they say, this is God. We will follow him. We will worship him. We will give our lives to him. And then we read that God, uh, so beyond almost the satanic delusion, we read of God um, kind of almost reinforcing this delusion, if you want to put it that way. And some people could say, but hang on, why would God allow them to be deluded? That doesn't sound right. John, Michael Eaton gives a good answer, I believe. He says this, God made justly hand unbelieving people over to the power of their own unbelief. God can punish unbelief by leaving the unbeliever in the power of his own unbelief. God gives every one of us a free will, friends. And so in short, God is giving them over to the law that they have chosen. God's just going along with their free will, all right? So it's quite a serious thing. And so they are condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. How do we respond to verses like this? Certainly not in fear, friends. That's not our response, not at all, okay? If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, if you love truth and goodness, you have nothing to fear. You are the exact opposite to this group of people being described here. The exact opposite, okay? And remember there are those like pre-tribulationists, I think mid as well as I understand it, who would argue that Christians won't even be around for this. We'll already be with Jesus, okay? But even if we are, friends, even if there are still Christians facing this, as I believe there could be, all right? Even then, you don't have to fear that you will be taken in by this delusion, this, this display, this false display, but a display nevertheless of power through signs and wonders. You won't be taken in by this delusion because you are a child of God filled with His Spirit, and your eyes are fixed on Jesus. And, and the Holy Spirit will, I believe, without a shadow of doubt, will give discernment to those who want it regarding who, that, who the Antichrist is. It'll be clear. Chapter 2, I believe, gives us enough pointers all on its own. Anyway, instead of fearing, we need to be mobilized to action. R.L. Thomas writes this. He says, What an incentive this powerful passage is for non-Christians to turn to God before the rebellion and delusion arrive. Friends, I want to say this would be an incentive for us to, as Christians, to mobilize now while we can. Because when this time comes, when those who delight in wickedness, who enjoy um, that which God is opposed to, who have so far rejected the truth, and suddenly they have this, this antichrist appear and this display of power, now they are following the antichrist at that stage to try and turn them to the truth, to try and turn them to Jesus Christ will probably be borderline impossible. That's a sad truth. So this is the thing means we've got to mobilize while we can, while there's time, and seek to, as our first chair says up there, to seek and to save the lost. Again, we are not called as believers to live in fear of the end, to live in fear of the Antichrist and this rebellion and all the delusion and things that go with it. That's not what we're called to. Instead, we are called to stand firm, to stand fast in our faith in Jesus Christ and the truth 
of God's word. That's, that's our response, friends. So I'm going to end off today by reading verses 13 to 17. It was something that Laurie preached on when I was in hospital some months back. But I want to read it to you. We're just going to read it. And I want you to note Paul's confidence, not so much in the Thessalonian church, but confidence in his God, who loves them, who had called them and chosen them. All right, so as I read this, read this as God speaking to you, okay, as these words being spoken over you as a child of God. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Let's pray. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Twice in that passage, we read of God's love for us. God loves you. And I want you to let this truth settle over you again today, that God chose you. You didn't choose him first. You didn't work things out on paper, a little formula, and decide, yes, no, God is real. I'll, I'll put my faith in him. Now, God chose you before the foundations of the earth. And God called you through his glorious gospel that you might share in the glory of Jesus Christ. How awesome is that today, my friends? We draw such confidence, such hope, as we look back at what God has already done for us. And as we then turn to look to the future, we can have hope for the future and confidence because of what God has already done in our past, what he's still doing in our lives today. And so I thank you now, Lord. I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would come. I know, Lord, there are so many who are fearing the future, even now, never mind end times, even this, this age we live in right now, just fearing the future. And I want to pray today, Lord, that fear would just be removed from our hearts. Would you, would you cause the love of the Father just to flow in our hearts even now, that perfect love that drives out fear? What confidence we have, what eternal hope we have as we look to that which God has already done and the fact that we are loved, we are chosen, and that we are called. Thank you that we didn't twist your arm, Father. You already called us. You did everything necessary for us to be saved, to come home to you. And so, Lord, we even look at this, at, at things like the end times and Antichrist and the rebellion and the delusion. We thank you that we don't have to fear this. We thank you, Lord, that you will lead us, you will guide us, you will provide for us, you will do everything necessary, even at a time like that when that day does dawn. But we pray to you, Lord, that as those who can have an assurance of salvation, who can have peace, that we have a right standing with you, that we wouldn't just sit back and settle on that, but that we would be mobilized, Lord, just like this is the time for the lost to turn to you, Lord, that we would recognize the urgency of the hour. Pray, Lord, that there would be a mobilizing of us and that, Lord, you would energize us. You would empower us. We, we know that the Antichrist is going to be energized and empowered by Satan, but we have a far greater power, the power of your Holy Spirit in us to empower us and enable us, to give us grace to do that which you've called us to do. And so we pray, Lord, for an increase of signs and wonders that would bring glory to you, Jesus, and cause hearts to turn to you. We pray that you would empower us, Lord God, to do those good works that you've already prepared for us, those divine appointments, Lord, that we would step into them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Oh, lead us, Lord. Keep us sensitive to your Holy Spirit. Lead us, we pray. 
And thank you for your power, your grace, your boldness, Lord, to proclaim you, Jesus, and to see hearts turn to you before it's too late. We pray this now in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. I just want to give an opportunity for anyone who might be watching this or could be here today with us. If I had to ask you this question, is your life right with God? If Jesus had to return this day, would you be ready to face him and to, and to face God himself? And if there's, your answer is no, or if there's even uncertainty in your heart, know that the Bible teaches that we can have absolute assurance of salvation. Johnny earlier in that test me referred to the insurance company who said that everything was covered. And those words really stuck with me because, my friend, when it comes to eternity, everything is covered. We cannot earn that which God has freely given us through his son, Jesus Christ, through the perfect life, the death on the cross, his blood shed for us, and even the resurrection itself. Jesus has done everything. Everything is covered for us to be able to come home to the Father. None of us can find our own way to him. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the lamb of sacrifice, we sang about it so much today. Jesus himself, the son of God, has breached that chasm, that great divide between God and man. And he's made a way for us to come home to the Father through him and only through him. So if your life is not right with God today, I want to give you an opportunity to respond today by praying this prayer. We don't just pray a prayer and then carry on with our lives. This is a key moment where you bring your heart to God. You surrender to him. You choose to follow Jesus and then you commit to be his disciple from this day forward. So I want to invite you to pray this prayer. A prayer that I honestly believe changes everything. The the most important decision of our lives will be what we do with Jesus, whether we believe him or whether we reject him. There are only two options. You either believe and follow or you reject and choose your own path. I want to invite you today to begin that journey of following Jesus. Would you pray this prayer with me and meet it with all of your heart and say, Jesus Christ, I call on you to save me. I confess, God, that I've sinned against you that I've broken your laws. I know I can't save myself. And so I call on you, Lord Jesus, to save me. I receive your forgiveness today. I surrender my life to you. I pray that you fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you give me grace each day to follow you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior, and that you open up the Bible your word to me. I pray this now in the almighty name of Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. If you prayed that prayer today, especially if you prayed it online or you're watching this later, I want to encourage you to speak to at least three people who you know are mature Christians. I, I'm happy to, or any one of the elders, any, anyone here as well who's present here today, but I want to encourage you to talk to others, to tell them, what you have done. This is not a secret little thing that we live. God has not created us to be lone rangers in his kingdom. We grow in community together, in fellowship as his disciples. It's vitally important. That's why church is so important. So I want to ask you today to commit to sharing with others and then to joining a local church, whether it's this one or whichever one God leads you to, and that you would commit your heart to following Jesus and growing as his disciple. This is the greatest life we could ever live. Jesus said this, he said, this is eternal life, that they may know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Eternal life begins for us, even now we get a foretaste of what we're going to enjoy in even greater measure for all eternity. I pray that God would give you grace and strength and that he would keep your heart fully committed to him 
as you follow Jesus from this day forward. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Wonderful. Can we give God a hand today? I just feel like we let's give God a hand. Isn't God awesome? Good. Great stuff. God bless you, friends. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Trust this is helping. If you've got questions, come and ask me. I'll do my best. But uh, thank you for joining us online. Have an awesome week, all of you. God bless you. And uh, we'll see you next week. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Good day.